As we open the pages of our New Testament again to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we discover that the Apostle Paul strongly urges the Corinthians to focus on building one another up. We will discover that the gathering of believers for Paul was not a spectator sport, but a contact relationship. Everyone has a role to play. Let's join our study leader, Dave Wordson, as he continues our study entitled, Gathered to Build One Another. We began our discussion in chapter 14 by trying to focus what I think is one of the major ideas. In fact, I think it is the major idea of chapter 14, and that is that the church gathers together not to have an individual spiritual high, but the church gathers together to meet the need of the person sitting next to you. To say a powerful word. And you might not think that it's a powerful word, but just one word of thanksgiving. Just one word of appreciation. One word of insight. One word of sharing can be breathed into by the power of the Holy Spirit and it can be strengthening to a fellow believer. And contrary to what we often get into, the question when we gather together as a church family, the issue is not so much, you know, what did it do for me? Uh, what did it do about my own relationship with God? Instead, the Apostle Paul is trying to get these Corinthians to focus on giving to one another and mutually strengthening one another. So our key word for this chapter is the word edification or building up one another. Verses 1 through 4 introduces that theme, and as far as we only got into uh, just verse 3 really, but everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening. There's our key word. That's the word that is highlighted throughout this chapter. Paul is encouraging the Corinthians to invest their strength in this first century church in asking the Lord to provide for them these intelligible understandable messages that come from God that are used in his church to build up a group of believers. And he says that this strengthening comes through two avenues. One is the encouragement or the coming alongside. It's a very intense word that means to counsel, to give advice, to give help. The word literally can picture someone that walks up to someone else and puts their arm around them and says, let me give you some encouragement along the way. The second word is only used once in the New Testament, but it means to comfort. And we have this combination of people that are giving wise advice and wise help, but they're also very tender people, comforting people. They give hugs, in other words. And I think that the whole family atmosphere that we're seeking to generate within our church family, it's very much summarized by the, these three concepts of strengthening one another through counseling, giving exhortation, but also doing it in a whole atmosphere of comfort. We want the church to be a family that is building one another, giving the comfort that can only come in family unity, giving the strength that can only come, strengthening and comforting one another. Verse 4. He who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. But he who prophesies builds up or edifies the church. Now I would like every one of you to speak in tongues. But I would rather have you prophesy. He who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless he interprets so that the church may be edified. I want to remind you again that usually when we approach this text, 
we usually approach it from a polemical standpoint, and that is to either build up the modern-day charismatic movement, or if you're on the other side of the fence, you're trying to tear it down. What I want you to do in this chapter is to enter into the chapter, think about the heartbeat of the Apostle Paul, and I believe that we can get by a lot of that polemic and get into the heartbeat of what Paul's trying to accomplish. Paul is concerned to convince the Corinthians that prophecy is greater than tongues. And the reason that's so is that prophecy builds up the church. When we're gathered together, the Apostle Paul is concerned not for individual worship experiences primarily. Not that that is bad. In fact, I think that's something that's often a mistake in this passage. Many times we come across like for you to have individual, very fulfilling, very emotional, very moving individual experiences is somehow wrong. I think it's easy for a Bible church to do that kind of a thing. And so we come down on the individual that has a lot of emotion, a lot of intimacy, a lot of warmness in their relationship with God. And we, we read these verses where the Apostle Paul is saying tongues in the first century was a bad thing. It was an evil thing. Now whether or not tongues is something that's applicable to the church for today is a different question. But we must be very careful to get into Paul's mind and understand Paul would have never told the Corinthian believers that the Holy Spirit-given gift of being able to speak in tongues was a bad thing in their lives. He would never say that. In fact, he says right here in this verse, I wish that all of you could do that. So he's saying that tongues for the Corinthians, which was a valid Holy Spirit gift in the Corinthian church, he says, I wish all of you could do it, but he said, much more I would pray that you would pray, that you would ask God that you'd be able to prophesy. Now why was that? Because prophecy was a revelation from God that would be in the language that people could understand. And therefore, instead of it just being an individual high, an individual moment of intimacy with God, it would become an intimacy that could be shared. It would become a strengthening of fellow believers. And then he goes on to say that prophecy is greater than tongues unless tongues is interpreted. So we have an equation here. Prophecy is more important in the gathered community of believers because it builds up the community. If tongues is interpreted, in other words, if we have tongues plus interpretation, then that equals prophecy. And that, therefore, will edify the church. And that's what Paul is saying in verses 3 and 4. He's telling us that he wants the focus of the believers of Corinth to be on speaking messages from the Lord that will build them up. Now I want to share something about what I believe about the gift of prophecy. I think on both sides of the movement, the non-charismatics and the charismatics, there's a tendency to downplay what we mean in the New Testament by prophecy. In fact, I think that a lot of times there would be a lot greater unity if we talked together and listened and analyzed what we're really talking about. Many times what a charismatic means when they say, I received a prophetic message, 
was the Lord enlightened me. I've been living in the Word of God. I've been studying the Bible. I've been praying. I've been living close to the Lord. And as I gather together with a group of believers, I receive an idea in my mind which I think will strengthen other believers. And they share that Word. And it does bring strength to other believers. Sometimes they might give guidance about a job or something like that. Even within that movement, and I try to read across the whole theological spectrum, even within that movement, there's a lot of discussion about false prophecy. Because what these charismatic groups have recognized is that someone's, sometimes someone will stand up and will say, thus saith the Lord, and give what they believe is a prophetic message. They believe it's a true application of the Word of God. It really is the Spirit's message for today, and it turns out not to be. And that creates a real problem. Because then people are faced with, well, what is the message from God? And I think that some of the problem with that is when we equate, like if I equate, let me just bring it back right to myself. I would never want you to equate what I'm saying right now with the words of the Holy Scripture. I don't want you to do that. The words of Holy Scripture are prophetic, revelatory, direct messages from God through the power of the Holy Spirit. All Scripture is God-breathed. That's our authority. Now let's go on from that. Does that mean, as I am speaking to you, Last week, after we were through, many of you came up. And some of you, you know, were really gripped. You know, you grabbed me by the shoulder. And you said, you know, the Spirit really spoke to me this morning. It built me up. Now, does that mean that I received a prophetic message? What we need to be very careful not to do is to acquaint that with the gift of prophecy. I think many times we use terminology and we're talking about some similar things, but we get a little bit confused because we use these words. And I want to use the word prophecy in the New Testament in the New Testament sense. And that is an individual that receives direct revelation. The Apostle Paul received direct revelation from the Lord God. There were times in his ministry, for example, when he was in Caesarea, when Jesus Christ himself appeared to this Apostle. And he told him, you'll witness for me in Rome. Now, the Apostle Paul, that's a heavy claim when he claims Jesus himself spoke to me and I saw him. But the Apostle Paul could substantiate that claim. He never predicted anything that didn't take place. He never blew it. He was always consistent in his prophetic gift. In fact, as we close this chapter... He's going to challenge the Corinthians as they evaluate the prophetic gifts within the church of Corinth. He challenges the Corinthians, you have the true Holy Spirit if you submit to what I'm saying. Now that's heavy. That's a heavy statement. He'll tell that all the churches and everyone that truly has the Spirit, you can know that they have the Spirit because they'll submit to what I write. Now, if I say that, you better evaluate it very carefully. In other words, if I start telling you, you can evaluate all the churches in Dallas and all the churches in the U.S. by the way they conform to Dave Wurtzen's teaching. And if they're not consistent with me, then throw it out. 
Now that's, I want you to feel that kind of authority. Now the Apostle Paul was not a proud man. He was a very humble man. But he was a specially foundational, gifted apostle. And I want to mention, even within the charismatic movement, there are many of the leaders that study the Word of God very, very carefully, and they would strongly say, write what I'm saying. There's a major leader on the West Coast who stood very strongly for what I just said, the need for submission to the apostolic message. As a pastor, I want to stress that because I believe it's very dangerous if you don't build your life on the apostolic revelation of Scripture. And that's the way I see prophecy used throughout the New Testament Scriptures. And that's the way I want to use it. And I want to go on from there saying and saying that I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit doesn't at times speak to your own heart. I believe that He does. But I believe that we need to take those messages and those insights and those revelations and be careful to compare them with the Scriptures, which is one of the points that Paul wanted to make for the Corinthians within this chapter. He goes on in verses 5 and following by developing a case of why prophecy, the intelligible revelation of a message from God, is more important than this ability to speak in tongues. And he develops his, thing, his message like this. Now, brothers, verse 6, Now, brothers, if I come to you and I speak in a tongue, what Paul is saying is, let's use myself as an example. Remember when I came to Corinth and I brought the gospel to you. Brothers, if I would have come to you and I would have spoken tongues, what good would it have been to you unless I brought some revelation? That is an inspired message that it can be understood, a revelation. For example, Paul one day was in the, in the temple of Jerusalem and the Lord came to him and gave him a revelation that he needed to leave that city and go away or he was going to be arrested. And at that time of his ministry, it wasn't time for Paul to be bound by the Jews. So he received an intelligible message from God to leave. It talks about the, the mystery, the insight into the mysteries of God. That re, that's related to this idea of the disclosing the unfolding, the, the unmasking of what God is doing. All that's involved in this idea of revelation. Let's say I come to you in a revelation or knowledge. And we're not talking in Corinthians just about knowledge like that I got because I'm an Old Testament major. We're not talking about graduate degrees. We're talking about the Spirit giving spiritual knowledge of spiritual realities. For example, one of the insights that we've talked about that we've gotten from the book of Corinth is that the idols of the ancient world really didn't have any objective reality behind them. They were just things. And yet we also had this spiritual knowledge that there was demons. There was a whole evil spiritual world that was behind that. Now how would you know that unless God disclosed it? None of us could know that for sure. I mean, we don't see, we can't observe, we can't hear necessarily that side of the spiritual world. But these first century believers, the Apostle Paul, one of the most significant ones, had this knowledge that could tell us that we didn't need to be afraid of eating meat that was offered to idols because the idols weren't anything. But we needed to very much be respectful 
and stay away from occult activities. That is an example of 1 Corinthians kind of knowledge. And we've been getting in on that knowledge as we've studied the book. It talks about prophecy, which we've been developing. Those are the inspired messages from God in an intelligible language. And the word of instruction, the word that we have there is teaching. And it's very easy. Many interpreters will, with this word, jump out of revelatory gifts and say, well, what we have is what Dave's doing now. He's teaching us. I don't think that's what Paul had in mind. I don't think Paul would say that his teaching was any less inspired than his prophecy. It was a different form. For example, I can give you an example of New Testament prophecy if you'll turn to uh, turn back to Luke chapter chapter 2. Or Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. We have a first century absolutely clear example of prophecy of the kind of thing that might happen in the Corinthian church and you might never never have expected this within this passage because we usually read these verses at the Christmas story. When Mary went to visit Elizabeth in Luke chapter 1, verse 46, as Mary walks in to see Elizabeth, who's pregnant with John the Baptist, John the Baptist, by the power of the Holy Spirit, even within the womb of Elizabeth, jumps and leaps for joy. And Elizabeth comes out with this marvelous presentation of how blessed it is that the Lord has chosen Mary to be the mother of the Messiah. Mary responds to this introduction or this welcome by Elizabeth in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. His mercy, His unmerited favor extends to those who fear Him, who reverence Him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and, his, and to his descendants forever, even as our fathers said. There is a New Testament extemporaneous example of the prophetic gift. Elizabeth came in. She welcomed Mary. Mary had the Messiah being formed in her womb. The Holy Spirit moved Mary, and she prayed what I just read to you. And there you have, if you ask yourself, you know, what was New Testament prophecy? There's a living color example of the Spirit moving through a believer like Mary and giving us a message from God. And we could spend the rest of the morning just interpreting and explaining and rejoicing in what Mary said, because she just told us the whole history of the world and how everything's going to end up and who's going to rule and reign at the end. And there's tremendous hope in that passage. And you talk about edification. I mean, you talk about getting built up right within those words that highlight the mercies of God and the need to be thankful. It's all right there. So there's an example of what was happening in the New Testament, in the gift of prophecy. And these were these 
these prophetic gifts, the instruction, the teaching, would be like in a book like Romans. The book of Romans is, is teaching. A lot of the book of 1 Corinthians is teaching. What we call the epistles in the, first century, in, the, in the second century church was often called the teaching section. You had the gospel section, the first four books, and then you had the teaching section. So in other words, I don't think that we should divide these words up and these are really inspired by the Holy Spirit, prophecy and tongues, but the gift of knowledge and the gift of giving teaching, you know, that's kind of an everyday normal kind of a thing. I don't think that's the way the Apostle Paul is speaking. In his life, it was inspired revelation, but it was intelligible. And that's the message that Paul wants to get across to the Corinthians. See, if I come to you and I just have a real high spiritual experience and I speak to you in a language that none of you understand, you, I'll be built up, but you won't understand. And he begins by driving that message home like every good preacher should do by giving us some practical illustrations. You know, what we've been talking about is kind of up here and it's kind of in the spiritual realm and we're grasping to try to understand it. He says, let me just use some common everyday illustrations. He says, even the case of lifeless or personality-less sounds that make sounds such as the flute or the harp. How will anyone know what tune is being played in verse 7 unless there's a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for the battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you're saying? You'll just be speaking into the air. What is the Apostle Paul saying? He's saying, let's take just musical instruments, for example. Even with the lifeless sounds, in other words, a flute or a harp isn't living. We're just talking about a thing, an object. We're talking about sounds. But he's saying, even with music, Unless there's some distinctions in the notes, unless there's some pattern that can be followed, it just sounds like noise. And Paul is saying that that doesn't lift you up. How many of you are bothered by unintelligible noise? Have any of you have ever been in a situation where you get a lot of noise going all at once? You know, the TV's going, the kids are practicing the piano, the little guys are yelling, you know, you've got a horn going in the back room, and it's all going all at once, and it just comes across as a pulsating nothing. Now, parents, before you jump too quickly on the kids, I play the guitar, and a lot of what you think is noise really is intelligible, very intricate playing. It sounds like noise to you, but try it. Try to go all over the neck of the guitar about 100 miles an hour and making sure you get all the right strings and you'll find out that it's not just noise. So I think we need to be careful. If I wanted to, I could really use this text, I think, illegitimately. I could come down and say, you know, boy, this music is so loud and it's all unintelligible. And, and we need to be careful about that. But I do want to point out a, a, something that's very important in what Paul is saying. And I would say this to the young people and the adults. The Apostle Paul is saying, be careful of things that just appeal to your emotions. Be careful of just losing yourself in subjective experience because you're not just emotions, you're also a mind. We will have to break in at this point and leave you to think about this important point Dave has just made. 
we must be careful of spiritual movements that divorce the mind from the emotions and the emotions from the mind. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 argues that a true relationship with God will keep both the heart and the head together. This is an important message to a contemporary church that swings a pendulum from a total emphasis upon reason and carefully developed doctrine to the opposite extreme that tells us to forget the doctrine and just enjoy the sweet experiences of the heart. In light of 1 Corinthians 14 and the apostolic authority of Paul, both of these emphases, divorced from one another, are wrong and unhealthy. I pray you will be challenged to prayerfully listen to God's voice in this chapter and apply it to your own attitudes and actions as you gather with God's people.